The real strength of a church organization does not lie in numbers or money or social position. Like the Company of Jesus, the Missouri Synod has indeed its Joseph of Arimathea, the counselor, its Nicodemus, the ruler of the people. But the overwhelming majority of its members are, and always have been, of the common people, people of moderate means and little social influence. That accounts for the fact that the Missouri Synod is so inconspicuous among the American church bodies. What then constitutes its strength? The Word of God, the position which the Word of God holds in its midst. Welcome, everyone, to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz, to talk about a very interesting subject, what we're going to call the forgotten era of the Missouri Synod. We're going to talk about intra-synodical relationships, or inter-synodical relationships, a uh, healthy ecumenism, we'll call it. We'll look at some mission efforts, uh, what we did, how pastors operated in those days, the theological controversies. We're bridging the gaps between our Tennessee Senate episodes and, to some degree, our ELS episodes. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Good to be here, guys. Yeah, good to have you. It's been a been a few episodes since we've had you on. Well, no, the the conclave. You were there for that. The gang was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. We all were. We must be more focused this time around. <laughs> that's the idea that is the idea here am i am i allowed to talk about the weather is that still a thing well we're getting there don't jump the gun all right all right all right yeah well we might as well since we're recording in the in these last gray days of winter please <laughs> Zelwyn, how are things in the tundra well considering we just came out of like a two-day blizzard i'd say things are about normal Otherwise, things are fine. I mean, we're looking forward to probably at least another month or so of winter. So, no, winter's really not over for us. But things things are going well. The eternal optimist. Is that actually real, or, or are you basically just a meme? I <laughs> am a figment of your imagination, Adam. <laughs> that one is just a fever dream that we all collectively experience. <laughs> the product of reading too much Norwegian theology and DMT. <laughs> Adam, how are things in the Commonwealth? They are, they're good. They're mild. It was sunny today and our snow wasn't entirely melted, but it was very pleasant. But chilly here in the central Illinois region or thereabouts. Strong winds, so the church lost some guttering, you know, but nothing we can't overcome. Some good laymen and contractors. I always feel like whenever Adam weather posts and whether when I weather posts, it's like tale of two cities, like best of times, <laughs> worst of times. I mean, <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it's rare. Like we don't, we get a hurricane here about every 45 years. Tornadoes are very local and quickly dissipate generally. Not so much on the high winds, not so much on the (laughs) blizzards. So it's kind of hard for me to say anything terribly interesting. I mean, we can grow peaches and tobacco in Lancaster County. So, and we do. So So it's pretty mild. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, gentlemen, the subject for this episode is rather interesting. Why might we refer to this as the Forgotten Era? The Forgotten Era, basically because anything for even most Missouri Synod pastors, let alone any other Lutheran pastors or laity of any synod today, they they might know a couple of names from the founding of 
confessional Lutheranism in the Midwest in the 19th century. And the, the name that pretty much everybody's going to know is CFW Walther, on whom we did many episodes in, in the last season. Pastors from the Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Synod, and the ELS will basically undoubtedly know Francis Pieper's name from kind of the end of the era that we're looking at tonight. But all of that in between, which is a time of massive growth and expansion and challenge in the Missouri Synod's history from about, let's say, the the American Civil War down to the 1920s, is usually unknown to people. Although most churches in the Missouri Synod that are of any age were probably founded then, pretty much all of our synodical institutions in one form or another, except maybe Concordia Irvine, were founded during this time period. So it's a very formative time, and I think listeners are going to find it's a very interesting time, but it is, I would say, largely forgotten. It's kind of a, it's kind of a black hole. And it's, and it's good to revisit because there's hours and hours of podcasts and gallons of ink spilt on, say, Seminex or, you know, even the founding of Synod. And yet there's so much richness and so much important in these formative years that we ought to really devote more time to it. And it's probably fair to say the definitive book has yet to be written. But we'd rather you just listen to the podcast. So. <laughs> 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 it's easier anyway. Why 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 focus? Why read? Why read? Why read? <laughs> so now there are three listeners left after weather posting and contempt. So it's just more more letters, more letters. So where should we begin? Let's let let me just give kind of an overview of the era as far as the the Senate is concerned. And we're gonna be talking about some particulars in the second two segments. But just just a basic overview, the Missouri Synod is founded after extensive negotiations between basically two parties, one being located in St. Louis and Perry County, Missouri. Those are largely Saxons, although there were some Prussians who had come to join them. And that group is led by CFW Walther. There's another group basically all sent out to one degree or another by Wilhelm Leia. And they are centered in Northeast Indiana, Northwest Ohio, and Southern Michigan, and then also the Saginaw Valley region with the Franken colonies. And those those two groups come together on April 26, 1847 in Chicago. They form the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, the German Evangelical Lutheran Synod of Missouri, Ohio, and other states. It's a small group at first, small number of pastors, small number of congregations, it grows absolutely exponentially so that by the turn of the 20th century, it is the largest single body not roped in with some other body somehow. It's, 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 it's just an absolutely gigantic church body stretching from Atlantic to Pacific. How that happened is what I think is most often overlooked about the Missouri Senate, not only the challenges it faced, which we'll talk about in the second segment, but also the fervency with which it pursued the task of carrying out Christ's commission, which we're going to be talking about throughout throughout the evening. Quite a bit later in, in the history, probably towards the end of the time period that you're talking about, Adam, is when the Missouri Senate came out in a large part into North Dakota. I think that was the part, of, that was about when the, the Dakota district was founded or something like that. I can't remember the exact details. Yeah, that's around the turn of the 20th century. The min, it, Yeah, it was Minnesota and Dakota at first, 
but at first that's that's when they're going to have traveling missionaries in the dakotas yeah well yeah and that's what i was going to get at is just the stories of some of these missionaries and in fact the congregation that i serve currently was a plant by one of these kinds of missionaries and for him to travel as fervently as he did often over places which didn't even have roads like not even like a dirt road just no roads whatsoever and yet to travel those distances uh, on a regular basis shows the great fervency that they had in carrying out Christ's mission. I mean, I know in eastern North Dakota, there were guys who were planting like 10, 15 preaching stations at a time. Yeah. I mean, it was just that kind of devotion to Christ's commission that really characterizes this period. So yeah, I think that's that's important to bring out. Well, let's talk about that for a second, just kind of as a historical uh, point. What would a preaching station look like as the early synod or the early, you know, confessional Lutheran pastors are coming in, they're going to plant churches, which typically has a Genesis as a preaching station. So what does the, what does that look like? What is a preaching station? A preaching station is different from a congregation in that it is not self-governing. So it is not a member of synod and it is not an independent congregation that would be served by a Missouri synod pastor, something, something that happened in maybe more agriculturally settled areas. A preaching station is going to be a regular place that he stops on a kind of circuit that he works at various times during the year. So sometimes pastors would, during times that maybe now, you know, a pastor might say, all right, well, I'm going to go on vacation because things are kind of slower at church. This is when you, this is when you set out on your travels and what you're looking for the descriptions that the Missouri Synod uses in the material that that I've used to research this topic is they'll, they'll talk about always looking for new fields of work or new opportunities. So you go into a town or you go to a farmstead and you're going to ask people, you know, kind of what is their religious situation? Are the children baptized? Has anyone been confirmed? And this is happening also in English. That's kind of a kind of a canard about the early Missouri Synod is that they avoided English. In official dealings, they did, but but not in missionary work. So there are there are English language preaching stations around the time of the Civil War, especially in places like New Orleans. But they're going to go out. You're going to you're going to kind of find out with people you make contact with what's going on with you. Do you know? Are you Lutheran? Do you know the Catechism? Stuff like that. Once you have made that that entry into somebody's life, you're going to ask them to collect other people or you're going to get names from them and go talk to those people and gather them. So this work takes a while. So what pastors would often do is you have a home base, traveling missionaries, guys who were just what we might now call church planters, although then they usually called them home missionaries or inner missionaries. It was usually a parish pastor who had a home base because that was more financially stable. You're going to travel out periodically, and that's why it's called a preaching station, because he'll go there and preach. And what you're working towards is a congregation that can incorporate and join synod and then eventually call its own pastor. Yeah, this is of particular interest for us today, I think, because we are reaching the end of the really comfortable parish, single parish model. So we've really been able to stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, Christian society, that kind of thing. But now we're going to have to go out, and perhaps we should have been doing this decades ago, and perhaps we should have never ceased to do this. 
in many cases. But go out and really follow this model again. I mean, all three of us have, to one degree or another, been involved in some kind of church planning effort and an effort, you know, intentionally reaching out to either non-believers or disparate Christians, you know, depending upon the context there. But we are, in a good sense, you know, God has handed us over as a nation to our baser desires. And so, therefore, the church now has to look towards evangelism again and that going out into the world again. And by the world, I don't mean, oh, the passing rain has shifted to the global south. I mean, literally going out into our local regions and doing what our forefathers in this era did and building from that. It's a rebuilding in many ways or just a building, you know, a period. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in a lot of places, it's going to be a building. You're, you're not building on much of a foundation, especially if you're dealing with people who, you know, their parents, their parents, and sometimes their grandparents, and sometimes farther back than that, have little Bible knowledge and lesser church attendance. You're dealing with people who are very much post-Christian, almost anywhere in the nation. But I, I think that if you look at the numbers, the numbers are one of the most impressive things about the Forgotten Era, which is that you have kind of a nearness when Synod is founded between the number of pastors and the number of congregations. So at first, there are more pastors who are members of Synod than there are congregations because they have to bring their congregations in over time. What happens is that eventually the number of congregations comes to very comfortably outnumber the number of pastors. And then on top of that is the number of preaching stations, which of course are served by that same smaller number of pastors. But even on top of the number of congregations, you have all of these preaching stations. And that the number of congregations and preaching stations goes up and up and up. And the number of pastors increases over time too, but it doesn't catch up to the number of congregations and preaching stations. And that means that the pastors, as well as the laity supporting them and carrying out this work also on the local level and in the town where the preaching station is when the preacher can't be there, everyone is working together for some bigger thing. And I cannot tell you how, I mean, just from my own experience with what is effectively a preaching station, Concordia Lutheran Mission, how refreshing it is to the mother church and to the mission church that we are working towards some bigger goal. It doesn't mean that you always succeed or there's 3,000 busting down the door every day, but it means that the church is focused on proclaiming the gospel. And I must say, especially in a case like yours, and in really Zellman's too, where there is a mother church that nurtures in a way, or at least shares a pastor, but we'll say that, you know, I mean, they nurture that plant or that preaching station. That's very important for the unity, but also, you know, for just for that shared mission and that sense of purpose. That relationship is very beneficial. And it's really good when you can have that as a church planter, instead of a guy who is going out there starting from scratch with no relationship at all you're already connected to a body of believers and then to a larger Christian community, which I do think is very important in the formation of new Christians and new churches. Yeah. Zalwin, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah. I mean, no, I I think, I think it's put very well. And (laughs) I mean, it's just, I'm just thinking in terms of like, like my own experiences and with, with church planting and just having the kind of drive that comes from, especially like with new members and stuff like that who are, yeah. are bringing other people in it really 
focuses the church and it really drives home the point of what we Christ has sent us to do. And I think I think it, that can't be you know overstated. Perhaps some of the the difficulties that we struggle with in our current context, and maybe I don't know how much we're going to talk about this tonight. I know we're trying to talk about the forgotten era, is that we have become somewhat broken in our interests. If that, if I mean, I, I think that's putting it extremely charitably. But well, expand on that. We got we got time before the break. We don't have the the singular focus that the forgotten era of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod had. And maybe that's whitewashing it a bit, maybe it's not, I don't, but I don't really think it is, because for a church body to expand in the way that it did, and for the mission work of the church to come to places even as far flung as Western North Dakota, which has never been and still is not by any means a populous area of the world, for the church to be able to do that requires a dedication and a singular focus that I just don't know if we have it anymore. There's a story recounted in Synod's official history for the Jubilee of Synod, 75 years after its founding. And the story is about a young man who gets a call out of seminary to be a home missionary in a Western district somewhere. I don't think it was the Western district, but I think it was somewhere in the American West. And he gets to his new charge and he asks for $35 to buy a horse, $35 and I don't know what the equivalent is, but you know, I, I guess it was a little expensive. And the people there say, well, we don't have that kind of money for you. So you should take St. Paul's example and just walk. And he did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that without romanticizing the fathers, I think it is important to ask yourself when you see somebody doing something like that, making giant sacrifices, well, what would push a person to do such a thing? And when you find out that they have this intense confidence in the gospel and in the authority that the Bible gives them to speak confidently about Christ, it, it's kind of amazing. And the whole era, I think, is therefore unduly forgotten because it has so many inspiring examples that, it, that it's left us. Very good stuff, guys. We're going to talk more about that, that singular focus and that unified focus that the Lutherans had coming up right after the break here on A Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken.
You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Coons talking the forgotten era of the Missouri Synod. Well, we talked a little bit about the historic background here and the great success that many missionaries had. But now let's take a look at efforts towards unity and perhaps some hindrances to the unity between the many and various synods of America at that time. Yeah, one of the misconceptions that people have about church history, I think generally, even from its earliest days, and in any given context, maybe about Lutheranism in the United States, is that it all started out unified, and then people disagreed for you know, some petty, stupid reasons or egotistical reasons, and then it all broke apart. The story is obviously a lot more complex in any church setting. In America, it's complex basically because of different times that people came to the United States. We talked about that a little bit in the Tennessee Synod episodes, that they were colonial Lutherans in the Tennessee Synod, colonial era. And so when they came into contact with the Missouri Synod in 1872 in Gravelton, Missouri, they were already English-speaking pretty much entirely, and therefore could not really join with the Missouri Synod because what would become the LCMS, that's the name that they took in 1947, was conducting all of its business in German. So you have linguistic differences, you have some ethnic differences, not so much with the Missouri Synod and its associated synods, but you have Norwegians, you've got Swedes, Finns, Latvians, there are Polish churches in the Missouri Synod, there are English-speaking churches in the Missouri Synod. So it's kind of all over the place linguistically. People come at lots of different times, and it's just a lot harder to be in touch with one another, even after the building of railroads. I mean, Synod splits up into districts for the first time in 1854, partly because of its expansion in the South and the East and the difficulty of those congregations and and pastors getting to what had been Synod meetings every single year. So there's expansion is kind of its own difficulty. And the differences between synods are not just ethnic or linguistic, they're also theological. And that's really what we're going to get into, I think, in this section, because it's probably the biggest hurdle that the Missouri Synod faces, or a series of hurdles, are the theological controversies that define it and challenge it and and test it, I think, pretty severely. It is interesting. What we're getting are immigrants who might share the name Lutheran, but that takes on a very different flavor depending upon region, even regions that might be relatively close to one another. Yeah. Uh, We know the church that Walter comes from is very much a a fractured church, and it's that way for most of the continent in many ways, starting to turn from what we would nowadays call a confessional position. There is a lot of debate, a lot of teaching, and a lot of in some ways, a redefining of what it means to be a Lutheran once they get to the Americas. And I mean a redefining, in in some ways, a a recapturing of what it means to be a Lutheran. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest differences between synods like the Missouri Synod especially, where you have educated, highly educated men coming from state churches to the United States and seeing definitely a lower level of loyalty to Lutheran teaching and practice among most American Lutherans. I mean, in the whole scheme of things, our beloved Tennessee Synod is really small. Most American Lutherans in the 19th century who are descendants of colonial populations 
are practicing something that's going to look a lot more like your average Methodist church than they are something that's going to have practices, customs, or teaching that is in line with what you find in the Book of Concord. And in some ways, the guys who come to form the Missouri Synod come, if I can say it this way, basically from the future, because they are coming from a theological situation and a a political climate, which is increasingly hostile, not simply to confessional Lutheranism, but to Christianity, to the Bible, just generally. And so they have learned to defend those things, and they found confessional Lutheranism to be a bulwark, whereas a lot of American Lutherans were not necessarily terribly Lutheran, but they kind of believed the Bible in a basic classical Protestant way and didn't really see, I think, sometimes what the big deal was that the Missouri Synod was making about utter fidelity to the scriptures, about very precise definitions of verbal inspiration. And another kind of facet to that is that the Missouri Synod is existing within a media culture that is German-speaking. And because of that, their interlocutors are, yeah, other German-speaking churches, German-speaking Methodists, German Reformed to some extent. But to a very large extent, and in direct competition with the Missouri Synod's paper, De Lutheraner, directly in St. Louis, are papers that are explicitly socialistic or sometimes even communistic. And so the Missouri Synod is dealing intellectually with stuff that a lot of Americans, English-speaking Americans, are not really going to take very seriously until you know the first Red Scare after World War I or maybe into the 1950s. The Missouri Synod is dealing with stuff like, why is communism bad? Why is the Bible true at all? It's a little providential because if you look at, say, places like Minnesota where these types of Lutherans settle in part, I mean, I know you've got more Norwegians there, but, you know, Missouri Synod still has a presence or these large farming communities, you're going to get the Wobblies coming in, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they're actually, as a people, directly dealing with communist agitators in the United States before a lot, before it even be in the consciousness of the the broader American mind. That's right. And all, and also like the opposition to secret societies, the most prominent of which is obviously the Freemasons. Secret societies in German political culture are incubators for the the introduction of political regimes that will always be hostile to Christianity. And that's that's also something I, I think part of the reason that this age is forgotten is because it's not famous enough to be CFW Walther and it's also generally not, none of this stuff is happening in English. Very little of it. It's interesting. A lot of our theological controversies are hammered out in English, or excuse me, in German, well before we have our greatest uniter, which is going to come to be English. English is ultimately going to bind us together, but it's good that the doctrine is laid down first, that those things can be settled in as much as they can be settled in an earthly manner, in a world of sin. And then eventually we assimilate into English, and so then we we end up sharing that large l- larger cultural aspect after the theological controversies are hammered out. Right. And those are going to be hammered out in German. So the controversies that the Missouri Synod goes through are, are center around essentially two different topics, one of which starts entirely internally, which is the controversy... I'd say the the bigger topic until about the 1870s, no doubt, is the question of what is the church and what is the ministry, which is one 
you know, interrelated question. And that, that starts out as a controversy within the Saxon settlements in Missouri. As a result of Stefan, yeah, this, yeah, they've exiled their bishops, so now they don't have a governor. And, and so what are they to do? Can they exist as a church without a bishop? Yeah, the deposition of, of Stefan. And then two really good resources on this are going to be Walter Forster's History, Zion on the Mississippi, although it's it's very you know, slanted, kind of openly slanted in his telling. And then the other one, which which in some ways I like better, is Carl Mundinger's government in the Missouri Synod. And that was supposed to be part of this giant project that Concordia Publishing House was going to do on the history of the Missouri Synod, like seven, eight, nine volumes. And I, I think those are the only two that ever materialized. But those are those are both going to reveal to you kind of the the internecine struggles in Missouri, but it's about church and ministry. And the really crucial thing for deciding this controversy and for that confidence that we talked about in the first segment is that Missouri gets the idea that if you just look in the scriptures and you use the Lutheran confessions also as an exposition of scripture to to help guide your thinking, you can actually find the answer that will be beneficial to the unity of the church and to the purity of the church's doctrine, that it actually can be found. And so I think something to stress here is not so much, well, what are the little details of every single controversy? You can look that up for yourself, but the method that is common to each of the controversies. And some of this stuff kind of upended my own kind of presumptions about how Missouri was. So the next one after the internal controversy is going to be the controversy with what's called the Buffalo Synod under Grabau. And Grabau had published a letter in 1840 called the Pastoral Letter or the Shepherd's Letter. And that outlined a theory of church and ministry, which was at odds with the Missouri Synod. Again, the details are not terribly germane for us tonight. But what is germane is that the Missouri Synod was as accommodating as it could possibly be to Grabau over a period of years and years in which he was kind of abusing them publicly as heathenish, pagan, because of their teaching on church and ministry. So Missouri was not a bunch of kind of fire-breathing dragons, which is sometimes, I think, what is conveyed about this era of Missouri is that they were they were arrogant or they were kind of too much or they were too assertive, that's really not borne out by how they deal with people who kind of, in, in many cases, just kind of like start a fight. I mean, that's that's what Grabau was looking for, and that's what he got. And Missouri does everything it can officially to reconcile with him over a period of at least a decade. Wasn't it Grabau who prevented Missouri from getting more copies of the cross catechism that they had been using, or am I thinking of a different individual? I'm not sure. Grabau is definitely malicious after a certain time period and, and feels threatened by Missouri. And what's interesting is Missouri doesn't remember him as like unremittingly evil. They recognize that he suffered greatly in Prussia for his Lutheran confession, but he had come to a very particular understanding of the ministry over against the congregation and and also of the role of ritual in the unity of the church as kind of a separate thing from the use of scripture. The only reason I bring it up, because I, I think that was the same one, and maybe this is actually a little bit illustrative of kind of what you're getting at with the Missouri Synod kind of just driving forward and actually trying to resolve things. If it was Grabau, I'm not, I, I, again, I don't remember all the details, 
basically prevented them from getting the Dresden Cross Catechism from Germany, which is the catechism Missouri Synod had been using. This other body basically had control of it, and they stopped giving it to Missouri. And so Missouri basically said, um, okay, you know, now we have to, what are we going to do? And so they go on then to actually create a new catechism, what would go on to be, I think, the Schwann Catechism. Yeah, Schwann, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which forms the basis for at least our previous uh, catechism, not the current one, the one that just got published, but the the 90-whatever one. 91, yeah. The 91, but that's just a little of a side. But it just it just emphasizes the point that instead of just kind of belly aching or always uh, being contentious, they actually just kind of saw a problem and then they worked to resolve it. I mean, that's, that's what they did. Well, in a very patient manner, too. I mean, this is it. It's not just a case of decade of a decade because communication was slow because it was getting rapidly faster even at this time. It was a case of patient debate and sincere debate. I mean, you hear the stories about in the early conventions where if there was a doctrinal matter, they would shut down business and debate that right? and, and try to get the erring party to see the error of their ways, for lack of a better word. I mean, there was just a, there was a sincere concern for doctrine that was always there, but there was a different spirit about how to go about it. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Adam, too, but when they finally did have to, say, like, expel an erring brother at one of these conventions, they would actually get down and pray the litany as, as a convention. Is that right? That's correct. They And this, this pertains to kind of the third big controversy, and, and, and to my mind, one of the most tragic, which is the split with first Wilhelm Lea on the doctrine of church and ministry, and thus what becomes the Iowa Synod, which are Leia people who could not remain in Michigan with the Missouri Synod people. They seek unity even after that split, and it does not come about because of the final controversy, which we'll talk about shortly. But the man who was expelled from Synod, George Schieferdecker, and went to the Iowa Synod for refuge and then changed his mind and came back, he was what we might now call like a premillennialist. And that was not permitted in the Missouri Synod because the Missouri Synod scripture has spoken on this and the confessions have spoken on this. The church is not allowed to treat millennialism as what the Iowa Synod would call an open question, meaning you can believe this and I can believe something that's opposite and it's okay, we're both in the church. The Evangelical Lutheran Church doesn't allow scruples or exceptions. Right. I mean that in a positive way. It's just the reality of it is we we don't allow those exceptions or scruples to our confessional documents in the way that other denominations might. Because the, the thinking is, if the Bible says it, then the church has no business not saying it. And the church also has no business adding to what the Bible says. So we're just saying what the Bible says. Therefore, we should be certain about it. So Schieferdecker is revealed to be a premillennialist. They actually shut down convention to discuss this for, I think, at least two days. He is not convinced of amillennialism, which is which is the biblical teaching and is the, the confessional teaching. And so he has to leave. At the time, he is the president of the Western District. I mean, this is not like some, some schmuck off in some corner perish with just a weird idea. This guy is helping to run the whole thing. And he's like, okay, I'm gone, you know? And and that they do get down and pray the litany after the admonition does not 
does not work. He goes to the Iowa Synod where his, what they call Kiliasm at the time, is welcomed. He later repents of that falsehood and comes back to the Missouri Synod. The point is, they actually thought it mattered and they actually thought the Bible could solve the question for the brother, right? And that there is a an utter lack of what you might call indifference, or it's actually a noun in the 19th century. And C.P. Croth, who is a Pennsylvania Lutheran in the General Council, commends, as does Matthias Loyett, who's also originally from PA, but was in the Ohio Senate, they commend Missouri for their lack of what they call indifferentism. They're like, you guys actually care about this stuff. Again, I I can't help but just compare it in in today's atmosphere, the party spirit that seems to pervade our church body these days. I mean, it's, I, I don't even think I'm overstating my case. I mean, we are a, a synod which has become deeply divided in some cases. And I think looking towards this forgotten era and considering what it is that they actually did and how seriously they took all of this is something that perhaps would be a good antidote to what to the conditions that we see now. I love what looks to the world like their naivete. They sincerely believed that if there was a controversy in the church about how does a pastor relate to a congregation or who has charge over foreign mission work or, or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the big controversy, which we shouldn't neglect to at least mention, is the controversy over what is the actual biblical teaching on election, the election of grace, that's the, that's the term in Romans, or predestination, that's the term in Ephesians. What is the biblical teaching and how does God elect Is it in view solely of his will and the merits of Christ, or is it his will, the merits of Christ, and something that he foresees or foreknows in the one who is elect, generally understood to be his faith, right? That was the question. That latter option in view of his faith had some precedent in Lutheran history, and it ended up being the teaching of the Iowa Synod and certain Norwegians, the Ohio Synod, lots of Lutherans. It was very bitter. And there was a professor at Concordia Seminary St. Louis who got the whole thing kicked off by basically being angry at Walther for Walther restating the biblical teaching. So it, it's, all, it's all very bitter, and it, and it crashes, to some extent, the project of unity that the Missouri Synod has been engaged in since it got here. Right, but they're willing to sacrifice a sort of very horizontal unity for the sake of true unity right in in the in the scriptures in the teachings of scripture right but but it's for this reason it's not for the sake of being right it's so that souls aren't lost to this error and it's for the sake of the mission of the church unity is important for the great commission right I would point out to our listeners, just as a passing aside, we did actually talk about the election controversy in some detail in the uh, Wauwatosa episode. So I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that if they want to go into this question in a little bit more detail. I want to say that what looks like naivete is simply whether you're talking about, well, we don't we don't have a horse for you, you have to walk, or, oh, uh, by the way, one of your top guys isn't real sure about this major teaching that's constantly argued about in America from the 19th century onward, namely what happens at the end of the world? How is the end of the world going to go down? 
but he just happens to be really important to figure <laughs> that out. And they don't sweep any of this under the rug. They actually deal with it. It really is kind of amazing. And I think that naivete is really, I mean, it, it comes off, I think, to some other people as kind of like crazy driven. But I think it, it comes out of just a confidence that the word of God can actually resolve things. Like, if you actually believe that it is what it says it is, then it can actually resolve controversies in the church. It can convert dead souls into living worshipers of Christ. It can do amazing stuff. It's men who actually believe that regenerate men will hear and believe the word of God. Right. It's men who believe in the new man. And that's really quite refreshing. Some of our opponents and their opponents are going to say, well, they're just sectarians, and really nothing can be further from the truth. They're actually looking for unity and broad unity within the church. It's interesting to go back to Zelwyn's point from earlier. We do have a broad indifferentism, which rather ironically leads to kind of a putrid sectarianism, where you have these little camps all under one big umbrella and each damning each other, no matter how far away one camp may be from the truth of Scripture. And it's just it's just how one thing leads to another. It's unity in truth for the sake of the gospel is what we're looking for, and that's not gospel reductionism. It's saying we agree on everything that the Bible teaches so that our witness to the gospel might not be a farce, and so that we can work together in harmony without all of this gridlock so that we can actually make sense as a Senate, as a functioning entity. So we have to have those things. It makes me think of David Hankel in, in the episode we did on him, where he was quoting in the Carolinian Herald of Liberty, you know, we are already united in the gospel. So what is what is left to, to unite? You know, why do we have to have these above and beyond kind of things when we already have this unity in the body of Christ. And I think that's something that can also be said to us in our current context to consider, you know, that our unity is in Christ and that factionalism is not going to to solve anything. Right. Well, we're coming up on the next break. So I know we said we're going to talk about the forgotten years, but we talked a lot about these controversies that are discussed often, but they're very important. They set the stage. Once these major controversies are settled, then the church goes about her work in the United States of America. More on that after the break. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitlySpoken.
This is a word fitly spoken. Willie Grills, Zell and Heidi, Adam Coons talking the forgotten era of the Missouri Senate. We talked about those early controversies that really formed who we are as a denomination, as a Senate, as a confederation of confessing evangelical Lutheran congregations. So once those things are settled and the church goes about her work spreading the gospel, what does that look like for the Missouri Synod and for those synods that she's in fellowship with? One thing that is, in air quotes, remembered about the Forgotten Era is the idea of the domineering pastor who is very strict, even now sometimes commanded not to behave as, it's, how do they say it, hair pastor. <laughs> That's how people say it. Her pastor. Her pastor. <laughs> What's funny about that is that it's it's simply a German title, and that's how you talk to people is by their by their honorific. So there would be a, a Mr. Teacher, a Mr. Pastor, a Mr. Judge, a Mr. Doctor. That's just the way you talk to people, too. You know. But I, I think what's funny about that is that a lot about our own history is remembered as basically an ethnic joke. And so these people are kind of taken for granted as these kind of quaint ethnic figures, and they had certain ways which therefore belonged to the past because they didn't speak English. Paging Garrison Keeler. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get those prayer home companion lawyers on us now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically <laughs> just your, your own religion, your own grandparents as a kind of ethnic joke. And I think one thing that people are going to find if they look into this era more. And there's there's different resources. There's, there's, of course, Walther's works, which are now coming out in English more and more. But you can find copies online of Ebenezer, which is Synod's own history in connection with its centenary in 1947. And there's prior editions of that that book as well. I believe the Concordia Cyclopedia, which is from the mid-20s, is online. And that's going to have a lot of history in the article on the Missouri Synod. So there's different resources you can find. You can also subscribe to the Concordia Historical Institute Quarterly, which is going to give you portraits of individual pastors most often. Or one thing that kind of got me hooked on this whole era was an article on Polish-speaking Lutheranism in the Missouri Synod, which was bigger than you might think. And one of the misconceptions that people have about the Missouri Synod is that being this ferociously German, simply ferocious group of people, they were only interested in each other. And that's actually just kind of a slander, honestly. Because of their interest in the gospel, not only did the Missouri Synod have more English-speaking congregations and preaching stations when what had been the English Synod joined the Missouri Synod as the English District in 1911. So there were actually more, so to speak, English congregations outside the English District than inside, even when it joined. The Missouri Synod operated in, by the 1920s, at least 16 different languages on any given Sunday. And that was to accommodate you know, populations that were around. And a lot of these are going to be kind of ethnically Lutheran populations like Finns or Slovaks, but some of them are going to be kind of surprising. Like we had Farsi-speaking congregations at one time in the late 19th century, early 20th. We also had a very large mission in New York to Eastern European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, such that we, we had a especially motivated missionary, Daniel Lanzmann, 
who translated portions of the Bible, the catechism, the hymn book, lots of stuff into Yiddish in order to reach those folks. So Yeah, and that was an interesting era because eventually there's some actual violence that breaks out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I, the Jewish mission was very difficult in for for the Missouri Synod missionaries. There were at least I think we had two full-time ones in New York by the 1920s. Then as now, there were not only people actively evangelizing Jews, there were also Jewish groups actively opposing evangelism. So like today, for instance, there's Jews for Jesus who are Messianic Jews, but then there's also Jews for Judaism, which fewer people know about. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, <laughs> it's interesting that you, you would even have a mission like that. And really uh, what's going to come along in America, I mean, at that time, because it really, I think as the cyclopedia put it, what it was by 20 or the 1910s, that kind of thing. You're getting your Schofield Reference Bible, first edition. Yeah. Christian Zionism, you know, is going to come into vogue before too long. So so very quickly among some evangelical circles, evangelism to the Jews is going to become passe, if not an error in their estimation. Right. Well, maybe to, to back up from a little bit away from the esoteric and kind of getting a little bit more back in the mainstream, what I find to be most interesting about about this missionary effort is that, like you had mentioned, Adam, so much of what the Synod was doing was happening not just in German, but also very commonly in English, so that Missouri Synod pastors very often preached in both languages. Yeah, but I would say bilingualism was, it was definitely educationally a goal, and to a large degree, simply an expectation. And that is from the first. So from the founding of, for instance, what was then and is now again, the Fort Wayne Seminary, English is in the curriculum. And in the what started in Perry County and then became the St. Louis Seminary, English is also on the curriculum. I'm not sure if it's mandatory or not. I can't recall exactly, but they never have any idea that they're sitting there just preserving German culture. There were other clubs for that. Yeah, there, there, well, there were. Those are, those are the non-Christian or anti-Christian organizations that they often opposed. So I, I think I think one of the sad things, and I'm I, I'm trying not to you know just like rage about this, but they are so vastly misunderstood as if they were like this extremely inward-looking group of people who were really only interested in themselves and. The horrible thing is that's literally the people who oppose them most fervently were like the modern descriptions by the Missouri Synod's own current day inhabitants of their forefathers, right? We're, de- we're describing our own forefathers sometimes the way that our forefathers would have known their most dire enemies to be. Inward looking, not really interested in the gospel, like all this stuff. It's like that's the opposite of the Missouri Synod. It's it's a little it's it's kind of sad, right? I think it's also it's very inspiring when you see them. You know the quote that we opened the episode with: when you see them accomplishing so much for the Lord with so little, right? The Missouri Synod does not feature. I mean, <laughs> it's not the Episcopal Church, right? I mean, all the guys who are getting filthy, absolutely filthy rich in the nineteenth century are Episcopalians or maybe a Methodist here and there. You know, in the case of the University of Chicago, a Baptist in Rockefeller. 
the the Episcopalians still pay pretty well, to be fair. Even, yeah, they sure even, do. In, the, even in their decline, they're still keeping the the coffers, you know, at least for now. The 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 payroll account's still pretty full. Yeah. Yeah, you make some wise investments. You got some you got some very wealthy Quakers, you got some wealthy Congregationalists. You don't have tons of extremely wealthy Missouri Synod Lutherans. It's just not the people that the Missouri Synod is reaching. And Synod also is the mission fervency. And this is this is not out of, you know, again, it's not out of a neglect of the rest of the world or something, but they see their primary vocation as reaching America for Christ because they are Americans. They're Americans. And they've been given something that they're always talking about how great this is. You can see it in Walther's kind of very Germanic Fourth of July address. It doesn't quite come off as American exactly in tone, but it's very Germanic in his what's it in English? Like like breadcrumbs collection. I don't think that's in English yet, all of that. But his 4th of July address talks about the religious liberty that you have in America. And the reason they're thankful for that is because they can be they can be biblical in their view. And so because they can be biblical, they are very excited about spreading that message throughout the United States. And that is really the focus. So as you watch the progression of the Missouri Synod from one unitary synod that meets every year, to four districts, to multiple districts, always spreading out, eventually into Canada and Brazil, and then eventually also Argentina, all of which are districts of the Missouri Synod into the 20th century. As that's happening, the reason that's happening is because they're always interested in planting something new, in starting something new in this pattern of preaching stations that we talked about near the beginning of the episode. That pattern is very orderly, though, too. So it's not just a case of arbitrarily getting a bunch of preaching stations. We talked about the one guy in Zellin's area. Was it 10 or 15 preaching stations? Uh, yeah, I can't remember the exact number, but a so lot. T- yeah, a lot. <laughs> it, it, and it wasn't just... A, they, he had those because he was going there and actually had people to preach to. It wasn't just simply saying, we're going to have 15 preaching stations because... That's the number that we've said. Right, right. The, the Lord gave the increase, and you're building on that to establish congregations. And once that's done, you go on. Another thing that you start to see developing at this time, probably more in the urban areas at first, is large churches. What do they do? They take part of the congregants, part of the membership. They go to another part of town and found another congregation, which is antithetical to the modern-day megachurch mentality. You just want to keep growing. But theirs was always bringing the church to other places, that growth in that way, not just growth in one place, not a static growth, I guess we'll say. But it's it's ever doing that. And it's also part of the American spirit at that time, too. America is going westward. The Synod's expanding. There is a, there's frankly, I mean, at least up through the, until the Civil War, there is a great optimism happening. And then, you know... A few years after the Civil War, you get that optimism back again, and then some pessimism, then optimism again. It's funny how national optimism sometimes leads to church growth, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) So they come at a very particular time in American history, and they take advantage of that in the best way. They see what's happening, and they want to bring the gospel to all of these new people and also to these Americans who perhaps had been here a while, but they hadn't yet heard the gospel. And that's and that's kind of what's so sad about when we're talking about all of this, because you mentioned like that 
the early Missouri Synod has become sort of an ethnic joke. You know, it, it really is quite depressing to think of it that way, that we would turn their sincere efforts and basically laying the groundwork for what we are today and turn it into, like you say, the exact opposite of what it actually was. I mean, <laughs> right. right. are we going to basically destroy our own patrimony for the sake of, I don't know, some sort of romantic vision or just a cruel joke? Yeah, or worse, you see that caricature of them and think, huh, that's something to emulate. Right. I think that the gulf, the linguistic gulf of shifting into English and then people not really being able to read the primary sources on this is part of it. But I think part of it, too, is just an attitude toward the past, which is not a Christian attitude. A lot of Christians have a very non-biblical understanding of their forefathers that is, you know, that was then, this is now. They didn't really know what they were doing. It was a simpler time. All of those things are simply not true. We have so much to learn from the past. And I would say, like, just take an example that that probably people are familiar with. The first Lutheran Hour speaker, Walter A. Meyer, is maybe still to this day the most successful Missouri Synod preacher outside of the Missouri Synod, best known in his time. Oh, without question. Yeah, and his influence, whether we see it or not, is so far-reaching into Christian media. He blazed so many trails. He had a Harvard doctorate. He was from Boston, Massachusetts, which was not exactly a hotbed of Missouri Synod Lutheranism numerically then or now. Nevertheless, the synod that produced him was this forgotten era synod. It was this supposedly insular supposedly uninterested in the world or current events synod that produced that man with his drive for missions and his his fluency and his capacity to communicate. I mean, what a, and just with fire in the belly. Oh, yeah. And just, right. and just absolute right. burning zeal. Right. And it's yeah. just, it's something you don't see every day and we could probably use use some more of. And frankly, I think it's also interesting that he was willing to engage and do this work in a, in a, brand new medium as well. I think it's something that is very much worth emulating. It is our supposedly still maybe majority German-speaking synod that decided to get on the bandwagon of radio, which really was, when KFUO went on the air, radio wasn't, it it wasn't like a sure thing technologically. It wasn't like everybody was like, yep, this is going to be how everyone's going to be communicating. We're sure of it. Let's go. There was a capacity to innovate for the sake of the gospel that we may ourselves not have to the degree that we believe we do. I mean, I think partly it's because we have neglected the past to the degree that I know we have. And it goes back to this recurring meme on Word Fitly Spoken, and that's studying history as it actually was. Once again, it's you cannot be unbiased in history, but you can at least be fair, and you can at least read with eyes open. And you can, in many cases, go back to primary sources or at least very close to them right. if you don't know German or whatever. But look at history for what it is. Read the writings of the people who are actually there. And right now, we're in the, a bit of a renaissance for translations of this era, so it's pretty good. We don't have everything, but we do have a lot of books, letters, things like that at our disposal. So you can get a picture of what these men were really like. There's where you meet your real fathers in their own words and in true history. 
we should be embracing and considering who our actual spiritual forefathers are, because I think part of what happens is, is when we ignore the past, sometimes we go to the other extreme and we so we glamorize some distant past that doesn't actually affect yes. us all that much. Yep. Um, thinking that this is the way that you know is going, we're going to be saved when we forget that our actual grandfathers were the men who were on their knees praying, the men who got out of their studies and went out into the world to evangelize everyone, German speaking or not, and these were the men who actually laid the foundation that we have today, not some distant <laughs> Byzantine or something. But an actual flesh and blood man, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, 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 right. Like, like the actual buildings that we worship in, go to seminary in, those were founded by these people, right? And sometimes literally built by them. Right. Sometimes those pastors were out there helping hammer nails in and things like that. Yeah, Keller has these great vignettes in the history of the Wisconsin Synod about pastors getting together to build their parsonages out on the prairie. And then the farmer stops by with it with the Parsons pig for that year. Well, you know, I live in a you know hundred year old parsonage, so I can bear testimony to the uh, to the building skills of some <laughs> older Missouri Synod pastors. Let me tell you, they were gifted with the Word of God, but not always it's, with mechanical aptitude. It's, it's sturdy, but to say square, it might be stretching it a bit. <laughs> right yeah. in some corners, you know. Yeah, you don't yeah. you don't need it to be plumb, Willie, because you're yeah. too busy evangelizing. So right, no. But I have to say, I have to say in testimony to those, and for anybody who knows this house and might be listening, it is an, it is an excellent parsonage and it is, it is built very sturdy and is very comfortable, but was built by the pastor and members. And that makes it pretty wholesome, fam. Very wholesome. <laughs> All right, guys, we're just about out of time. Any last words? Yeah, I think we'll be returning to various parts of this era in different ways. I know we'll be talking about the Synodical Conference this season, at least. But I, I just want to commend to the listeners anything that they can get their hands on, whether in translation or not, of the Missouri Synod in its first, let's say, 75 years. I think there's a lot there to inspire and a lot there to help them grow in their own knowledge of Christ and, and witness to Christ as the fathers themselves grew in Christ. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zoe and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.